Uh, today we're, uh, we're studying the second part of the Helmet of Salvation in our Standing Firm Armor of God series. And last week, just a brief recap, we introduced this idea of the Helmet of Salvation. We pointed out that salvation is a, it's a foundational Christian doctrine in the faith. It is a belief that is central to the mission of Jesus. Uh, and after he left earth, after he ascended, after his resurrection, he left us with this very same mission. Such an important theme, particularly in the Gospel of John, that Jesus tells us everything he did on earth, every word he spoke, every good deed he did in a community, every person that he blessed, all of this was done so that people like you and me, people just like us in the first century world and every century since leading to this very moment and until he returns, everything was done so that people like you and I could find salvation or, or eternal life in him. It's one of the, the main things he brought to the earth was the pathway to know God in deep and meaningful ways. And so we talked at length about how the helmet of salvation deals with the penalty and the problem of sin. So we won't revisit that today. And I mentioned last week that this teaching is very much connected to the breastplate of righteousness, which we've already spoken about. So if those ideas or those truths are things you would like to, to kind of think about and pray about and process, and you were not here for those teachings, please listen to those online. They're foundational to what we're going to talk about today, but obviously I will not revisit them since we've already addressed them. We also said that uh, keeping us from judgment, addressing the problem and the penalty of sin, keeping us from judgment is one of the main things the helmet of salvation deals with, but it's not the only thing. That's a very myopic view to understand uh, that it only does that. It's much more powerful than just that. Paul wants us to see that when we wear the helmet of salvation, we're literally wearing a gift from God that saves us from a host of of perils that can have a past, present, and future effect on our life. And we briefly talked about Philippians 2.12 last week, where Paul tells us to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Not working out meaning do something to earn it or to, you know, to, to, to garner the favor of God, but working out meaning the application of this in our life is never-ending. The reality that we have experienced the grace of Jesus and we are living in the grace of Jesus is meant to shape every area of life. We might find faith in Jesus in a moment of our lives, but the application of that faith is eternal. It, it is physical on this earth and eternal, permanent forever. And it's to these perils, at least a handful of them, that I want to turn our attention to today. What, what I want to do is talk about how salvation actually has an incredibly significant impact on life in this life, not just in eternity. And this leads me to the main truth I want to share with you today. The helmet of salvation gives us the power to face any circumstance in life with hope. It is a literal piece of armor that allows us to prosper and persevere in the face of great adversity, no matter what it is in life. And I will reread, just for emphasis and context, what Abe, our worship leader, just read to you a moment ago from Ephesians 6, 13 through 7, 17, excuse me, and then I'll really narrow in and focus in on 17. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. We have taught multiple teachings on every one of those statements. And in addition to this, he says, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take, he says, the helmet of salvation. And that's where we're at in this, this sort of linear argument for the armor of God. Now, much like the breastplate of God's righteousness, the helmet of salvation is an ultimate assurance of protection from God. It is a piece of armor that guards us from some very dangerous things in life, things that will seek to dethrone Jesus 
from the throne of our hearts. And that protection begins in this life and it extends into the next. So these are both they're, they're, uh, blessings, you might say, or protections that begin in this world, but they know no boundary. What Jesus has done on the cross is an eternal work. But what I want to focus on today is how this affects our life on this earth. And so in the same way a helmet protected a soldier from the various dangers of the battlefield, uh, and keep this in mind, there's literally been no civilization, no, no military that I could find that did not have some form of a helmet that was worn. In the days of Paul, this was likely to protect themselves from blunt objects and swords. Even our modern armies today wear you know, really high-tech helmets made out of Kevlar, which which can absorb an incredible amount of damage on the battlefield. The, the helmet was a critical piece of armor for any soldier because it, it protected the other control center of your life. Typically, when I talk about the control center of life, I talk about the heart, how it's the seat of our emotion. It often drives what we do. But the head, our mind, our thoughts are equally as important in the Bible. It's, it's an equivalent control center. These two things feed each other. And so the helmet of salvation when you think about it in the context, not of combat, at least physical combat, in, in our spiritual lives, this is designed to protect our heads. And within our heads are these things called our minds. And our minds generate an awful lot of thoughts. They direct our thoughts. They cause us to think. They make us think. And this is important to know because much like our hearts, our thoughts tend to drive our actions and the way we see life. I use the word control center because what you think has a direct effect on who you are and what you do. It is a, it's a driving force in life. Your head, like your chest, breastplate of righteousness protects our chest and the heart within it houses a, a vital organ in your, uh, of your body, your mind. And it's pretty clear in the Bible that God speaks to people through the heart and the mind. He has a number of ways that he speaks to us. We've been created head, heart, and hands. And so it's important to know, much like we talked about last week, we said that salvation and sanctification are two works that work in tandem with each other. Salvation simply meaning we're redeemed by Jesus. Sanctification is the promise Jesus makes us to help us grow in his grace for the rest of our day. So it isn't a one-time event that we forget about. When we come to Christ, when we officially seat the helmet of salvation on our head, Jesus then commits himself to help us grow in his grace and his goodness for the rest of our days. That's a very practical understanding of what sanctification means. God spends the rest of his days shaping us and reshaping us into the image of Jesus. And these two terms, these two beliefs, they, they, you might be able to separate them on paper, but in practical reality, in, in a theological way, they are inseparable. Each one stands as an evidence of the other. And the same is true when it comes to our head and our hearts. They, they really do feed each other. What we think and how we feel, how we feel and what we think. And especially because most of us are wired with some, we have a primary mode in the way we process things. Uh, some people are more inclined to, to be head heavy, meaning the first step in getting to them or getting through to them is that they have to process something through their mind. These are the cognitive types. Some of us are folks that, that might be more emotive in the way we process thoughts and ideas and truth. Our minds matter, but, but really our heart is where, where the conversation begins. These are important things to know. But what I want to point out today is that when they are separated, when the head is disconnected from the heart, uh, we have an imbalanced form of Christianity. And when the heart is separated from the head, we have an imbalanced form of Christianity. And although we don't have the time to address this today, 
when our hands, the very work we do in the world for Jesus, is separated from our heart and our head, we have an imbalanced form of Christianity. Simply meaning to know a ton of stuff about the kingdom of God, but it not affect our hearts as a problem. To feel about a bunch of stuff about the kingdom of God, but it not shape our thoughts as a problem. And to know and feel things about the kingdom of God without it actually shaping our words and our deeds, what we do for the world in the name of Jesus, is a problem. There's three of these items that are sort of meant to be balanced in imperfect ways in our lives. And if we're going to be honest, since we're talking today about the mind, we have to admit that our thoughts at times can be both beautiful and dangerous. Thoughts change the world in good and in bad ways. Thoughts change our lives in good and in bad ways. And so to put on the helmet of salvation, it means that we are choosing to use the power of salvation. All that authority Jesus showed the world on the cross when he was crucified for us, we begin to tap into that same power to shape and reshape the way we think about life, perspectives, circumstances, our world, and in particular us. And when we wear the helmet of salvation, not just thinking about something Jesus did a long time ago, when we wear the helmet of salvation, recognizing that it has an application in our life every moment of our lives, it protects us from a lot of things. A few that I'll mention today are uh, the past guilt and shame of sin, which the enemy seeks to impose on us. This is one of the fiery darts of the devil, one of the schemes of the enemy, a whole couple of teachings on those. Shame and guilt are major tools of the enemy. And while I'm not saying that you can't, you can't start growing in God with guilt, maybe that's a starting point. If your only mechanism for growing in Jesus is guilt and shame, that's a problem. That's not the way God works. It's not how he works, let me put it this way, in indefinite ways. We might begin with guilt, but we really don't recognize the grace of the cross if it's the primary emotion that drives our life. The helmet of salvation also helps us to deal with present temptations, sins and schemes of the enemy, which will seek to derail us in life. That's the whole point of the enemy, is to take truth. Remember, we, we really had some solid talks on how the enemy works in the world. And uh, contrary to popular belief and films and movies, you know, we're in the Halloween season. There's always lots of movies about this right now, like how the devil works. And the point is, is he's very subtle, especially in our side of the world. He's a truth twister. He takes, he takes very important truths and he tweaks them to the point where they still seem believable, but they are lies. So for example, uh, God desires you to live in, in a permanency, permanency of guilt for the rest of your lives. That could be, it's a very easy way to look at sin and to see that God's desire for you is to essentially live under the yoke of that problem. That's a, that's a truth that's twisted slightly because the real truth is, but Jesus also uh, came to the world so that we could be free from the guilt and the shame of sin and grow in grace out of it. Truth twisting is his game. And so the helmet also gives us a present and future hope to cling to no matter what's going on in life. And there is one particular area of conflict we often deal with in life that I want to talk about this morning. It's the only idea I really want to kick around. And this area is actually a person. So this form of conflict is not a thing. It's a person. And this is the person in our lives who can be the greatest advocate or impediment. This is the, the two poles we function from. We are either, this person's either the greatest advocate or an impediment when it comes to following Jesus. Who's the person, you might ask? Um, some of us maybe immediately think about people in our lives, but I want you to stop that right now. The helmet of salvation can even protect us from our own worst enemy at times, ourselves. We are often, usually I would say, the greatest enemy. The, we are the greatest advocate for our progress in Jesus or the greatest enemy. Let me explain what I mean by that. This statement is where I want to spend the bulk of our time this morning. 
And while there certainly can be situations in life that defeat and discourage us, we have to be aware of the fact that at times we are the thing keeping us from truly experiencing the kind of peace and hope Jesus offers to us through salvation. There are many ways people describe this reality today, like colloquial proverbs. They'll say things like, well, you're your own worst enemy, you know, or you're too hard on yourself, or no one is harder on yourself. There's a million of those types of ideas, those statements out there, but they all signify that if we're imbalanced in our understanding of who we are, in other words, if we don't have the mind of Jesus to recognize who we are, we can be at times either maybe too benevolent with ourselves in the places we need to grow in Jesus, or too hard on ourselves in the places where God is trying to use grace to help us overcome whatever it is we're dealing with. And if you've ever been in a life situation where you felt utterly defeated in an area of life, you know that it can be very difficult to want to do anything. When, when defeat drives the day, it is an oppression that can really stop us from, from thriving in Jesus. And today, these negative feelings, they take the form of a lot of things. I'll just mention a handful of the common ones. This can be excessive sadness. It might uh, manifest itself in anxiety or anxiousness. Sometimes we get very fearful. Maybe what happens is is we're beat up to the point, uh, or we're beating ourselves up to the point where we just get apathetic. Numbness is a coping tool. In other words, if you want to stop feeling something, a lot of times we just choose to stop feeling everything. And that's a problem. It can lead to insecurity and a host of other expressions. This is certainly not the, you know, the final list of the way emotions can manifest themselves in our lives, but it covers the big ones. And there's a great example of this type of internal emotional defeat, spiritual defeat, in the book of Nehemiah. The Bible's packed with stories like this. And our lives, if we've walked with Jesus for any amount of time, our lives likely bear wounds from this. But I want to share with you just a a bit of a cosmic idea that is brought about in the book of Nehemiah, where this internal emotional defeat is is sort of the, the people of God are on this precipice where they either move out of this and follow God or they remain under the weight and the yoke of oppression, shame, and failure. And what's happening here is they're they're God's people. They're at a a really low point in their lives, like, They've hit the bottom in a, in a few steps below it because they are living, this is thousands of years ago I'm talking about now, but they are living in the once great city of Jerusalem, which had been at that point in history destroyed by the Babylonians in large part, and we can probably even say mainly because the people of God had drifted so far from God that God enacted judgment. After hundreds of years of, of patience and patience and patience, eventually what happened was the, the hammer dropped to get their attention. And so the Babylonians sack the city. They destroy it. And this is a major blow to God's people. They destroy the temple and the walls that surround the city. The, the two most prominent features of the city are destroyed. Because uh, at this point in the life of, of Israel, God's, God's people, right? Jerusalem is the epicenter of their faith. It's, it's the main place where everything's happening. And so for these things to be destroyed really symbolized the defeat for their faith. Now, naturally, the people were very discouraged during those times. It was a hard season for the nation of Israel. And some of them, even through that, still remained very far from God. And so after God's people began to see the error of their ways, in the book of Ezra, we read that in God's grace, God helps them to rebuild the temple. Interestingly enough, he begins with the spiritual epicenter before he addresses the physical reality of their life. He, he starts with the, with the thing that matters most. The, the temple is both the, it's a physical rebuilding of the temple, but there's also a deep spiritual parallel there. He's rebuilding them in him. 
Okay, this would sort of be like us saying today, uh, Jesus rebuilding himself in us after a, a moment or a season of hardship. After the temple is destroyed, God rebuilds the temple. And this is recorded in the book of Ezra. Definitely read that if you have some time. And then after that amazing feat, you get the book Nehemiah, where he is sent there to Jerusalem to undertake this seemingly impossible task of rebuilding the city walls of Jerusalem. This is a task that nobody believes they can accomplish at this point in their history. There's a deep irony in this story. It's that Nehemiah is asking God's people, who are literally at arguably the weakest moment of their life, to do something that requires they find a strength they don't have in the face of great adversity. And Nehemiah boldly asked them to lay aside what was perhaps the greatest thing keeping them from truly experiencing God again in their lives. They, they had yet to fully repent, and because of that, they were suffering under the weight of internal shame and defeat. They were a beat-up people in every single way. And what I love about that story, and you can see this in the way other people sort of handle these similar affairs in the Bible, and this is a lesson for us to learn in how we deal with this in our own lives, how we deal with this in the lives of other people when God affords us the opportunity to care for them. He challenges them to reclaim their hope in God. That's the whole narrative of that story, is he's trying to redirect their attention to the God who can make the situation in front of them right again. And he begins with their hearts. And he doesn't do this, and this is going to be in sharp contrast to, to a lot of what we see in our world today, but he doesn't do this with like 10-step um, remedies to get through life. He doesn't release his latest book, you know, Nehemiah's Ways to Peace and Hope. He doesn't give you some webisode thing to watch. He doesn't use any slickness, any marketing, any, anything like that. There is no manipulating of emotions because the stuff they're dealing with is so deep that that stuff cannot fix that stuff. In other words, the application of tri- a, trivial, uh, a trivial treatment of these matters would not have actually addressed the heart-deep problems they had. Rather, he simply reminds them, the foundation of what he repeats over and over again is, God is with you. He is for you. His hand is upon you. It has never been his desire to leave you. But when you run from God like this, at some point, God has to respond. And so he keeps reminding them, God is very close to you. You are very far from God right now, but he is much closer to you than you think. And he drives them towards a truth their hearts had long forgotten about God because they were living in this lie of personal defeat for so long. They had been so bruised by the circumstances of their life that they actually began to believe that was the way their life was supposed to be. Hopeless and helpless. And Nehemiah's words remind them and us of a timeless truth about God that Paul reiterates. These are not just Old Testament truths. These are God's truths, which means they transcend both Testaments and are applicable in our lives right now. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 11, it'll be behind me. Paul reiterates this idea. But he said to me, this is Paul dealing with the thorn in his side. In other words, he's got his own internal destruction going on. He's got his own problems. And he says, but he said to me, after he's asking God to take away these problems. He's saying, God, make my circumstances different. And God responds to him by saying, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, it's interesting. In both of these scenarios, Paul, with his thorn in his side, whatever this ailment is that he deals with, uh, even the, the people of, of Israel, Nehemiah, oftentimes what we want when life is difficult, the way we want to be saved from these moments 
is for the circumstances to change. But in both scenarios, we see that God is seldom concerned with changing circumstances. I'm not saying he can't or that he doesn't, but I'm saying adjusting circumstances never addresses the root issues in our hearts. And that's why Paul goes from asking God to change his circumstances. What, what happens here is Paul understands the truth about his heart. And what God tells him is, listen, even in your weakness, I will make you strong. I will become in you something you don't even think you can become. And then Paul goes on to say, think about this. He goes from asking God to make his life easy. He goes on to say, and it's now because of what Jesus has done that I delight in weaknesses. I can deal with insults. I persevere through hardships. When persecution comes, I don't care for them, but I can press on. When difficulties are there, whatever comes my way, when that weakness comes upon me, I know that I am strong because it is Jesus who is in me that is making me strong. Same principle, both Testaments. It is God who reveals his strength to a broken and a failing people, raises them up again, and causes them to do great things. And it's worth pointing out some of the shame and defeat This is particularly now an application to what we talked about in Nehemiah. But I want you to kind of take these ideas and parallel them immediately to your life. It's worth pointing out that some of the shame and defeat God's people felt, it truly was the consequence of hundreds of years of turning away from God. The same feelings can creep up on us if we're in a season where we've been distant from God too. A season where we've, we've treated God more like a distant cousin and not our good and loving father. Remember, we're given the, the privilege and the freedom to, to refer to God as our Father in heaven. There's something deeply meaningful and intimate about that. And sometimes when we do not embrace that or when we walk away from that or we, we pursue a relationship with God that is more trite or trivial than it is meant to be, that can bring about these feelings it, because our hearts, our souls are out of tune with the way we've been created to be. And while the common story of humanity is for us to blame the external circumstances in our lives from keeping us from truly experiencing the freedom of Jesus' salvation, I call this blame deferral, and I'm subjected to it in my own life at times. Blame deferral is the thing that often keeps us from from truly being freed by Jesus. What happens is, is we've got something going on in our own lives, major, but we become masters of pointing out why other people are causing these things in our lives. And I'm telling you, God loves you and those other people. But when it comes to your life, God is going to be most concerned with your life. Seldom are the days when the other people, whatever's going on, are addressed first. Because God is always concerned with with rewiring us in a way that helps us to deal with whatever the other people, the other thing, the state of our city, Jerusalem, or the condition of our physical ailment. Paul, it is seldom the circumstance that has changed. Because if God changes just the circumstance, what happens is, is we've actually not grown in him to the place where that can be applied to other circumstances. And we just find ourselves at the same dry well again at some other point in life. And so while it is very easy for us and common to defer blame Our internal feelings about ourselves are often the real enemy keeping us from any kind of forward progress with God. And so every person with a beating heart in this room likely has some story, some some memory, some narrative in their lives where this has been a reality for them. We hear this emotional and spiritual reality described in different ways, but it's all talking about the same thing. When it comes to the things that, that rob us from the freedom of salvation... Jesus freeing us from the problem of sin and then empowering us to live victoriously over it in our lives. What happens here is sin, the more we dwell on it, the more it seeks to rob us of life, it steals. Just like the enemy who comes to 
to steal, to rob and destroy. That's what Jesus tells us in John. His tool, sin, does the same thing. There's no end game except for, for the robbery of, of, of our souls. And when we live in it or under the power of it, when it is driving our thoughts and how we see ourselves and the world around us, it creates this looping emotional cycle of grief, shame, and despair. It creates a deep sense of uneasiness in the depths of our souls. And what that often causes us to do, these are the great fiery darts of the devil, is it makes us question our value and worth in life. It gets us to the place where we begin to see ourselves in less of a way than God sees us. And in Nehemiah, that is the true enemy of God's people. There are external enemies in that story too. They're actually, you know, I don't have time to go through that whole book and I taught on it years ago, but there are external things that are difficulties. But the root of what God deals with in Nehemiah is not the externals. It's the reality of where their hearts are with him. And so the true enemy of God's people is the fact that they chose to walk away from God. And when they did that, the more comfortable they became being away from God, the more natural it was for them to embrace the things that were not of God. And somewhat ironically, the people of God were living without the power and the presence of God. And this is a very common thing today, particularly when it comes to our understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit. We can have the accoutrements of the adornments of faith, but oftentimes they are disconnected from the root and the power and the authority of, of, of what our faith provides for us, and that is the presence of Jesus. Notice Paul, Paul isn't referring to things that help him to be strong when he is weak. He says, it is why for Christ's sake. He's saying, it is now in Jesus that I have recognized where there is weakness in me. Even this can be a blessing because God can manifest his strength in me. He can use this simultaneously to keep me humble, but also help me to grow and progress in him. And so the people are living without the power in the presence of God. And I want to say this as we slowly begin to wrap up here. We, we should be cautious of being too hard on God's people here because we can very easily find ourselves in the same situation. We do not want to be the type of people that point our fingers at other people in the Bible or other people in our lives and say, yep, there, there it is. There's that blame deferral going on in their life. There's that cycle of shame, grief, and despair in their life. You know, there's that person who's far from God. Because I'm telling you, there are moments in our lives where we experience the same things. And it is my hope and desire that when we struggle in these ways, there are people around us exhorting us back to the truth of God, not necessarily isolating us or, or reminding us of our failure points. This is part of what genuine and messy community actually is. Years ago, I said that when we are around people or we are the people that are struggling or suffering or, or straying from God, we have a responsibility to be roadblocks for those people. We, we might actually be the, the literal roadblock that keeps somebody from driving their car off the cliff of life because we stand in their way with truth and grace to try to help them understand where they're at and to care for them during their time of need. And so it's very easy, even in a sermon like this, to defer the truth to other people. But the point of what I'm talking about today is that the most applicable person these truths apply to, it's going to be you and it's going to be me. And so I want to particularly apply this, this truth to the helmet of salvation here. And I want to explain what I mean by this. In some Christian circles, uh, it's very common to only hear that Jesus dies for the penalty of our sins on the cross. We addressed this last week. And this is a very true thing. And don't hear me saying this like it's not a significant thing. It's a very important thing. It is an amazing grace of God. It was the subject of last week's teachings. But you folks will know, if you, if you read the Bible, you know that the, the Bible will use this, this Jesus dealing with our sins, taking the wrath of God, the judgment for us. The Bible talks about this as propitiation. This is the, this is the word the Bible gives us. And it simply means God took God's judgment and justice, Jesus took it upon himself so that we didn't have to deal with that. 
Propitiation has been talked about a lot. It's been the driving root of a lot of the salvation movements in our country and around the world, and it's a very important truth. But when it's disconnected from the other truths, the other areas of the way redemption work in our life, what happens is we can almost focus on it so much that, that it becomes either a past tense event or we begin to miss out on the beauty of how propitiation is applied in the rest of our lives. And so at times in this room, I've talked about this other equally meaningful doctrine called expiation. This is another belief that we have as Christians of what the cross from Scripture, what the cross does for us. Propitiation deals with the wrath of God. But what expiation says is that Jesus' death on the cross not only pardoned you of your sin, but also gave you the power to no longer live under the shame and defeat of your sin. Last week, we described this as the fire, a house fire, right? The house fire is put out, but the effects of the fire can linger for decades, sometimes forever. How sad would it be if Jesus just sort of said like, forgiveness of sin, I'm out. See you in heaven. Hope it works out for the next 70, 80 years of your life or whatever we have on earth. It's not congruent with the character of Jesus. And that's why understanding how salvation is worked out in our lives, that fear and trembling idea in Philippians is important because the effects of the fire can actually wreck the house. They can return to us and burn down the house of our hearts again if we're not careful. And so his death has also given you and I the power over the lasting effects of sin in our life. All those words we just talked about, shame and defeat and discouragement and unworthiness, these, these paralyzers, I'm not saying they can't hold sway in your life because they often do, but they no longer have the authority to do so. It's sort of like we have to grant them the permission. When the power of Jesus is in us, that cannot overcome the power of Jesus, these ideas. What they can do is overcome our power. And this is a place where we need to be honest about our weakness so that Jesus can be made strong. So what I'm trying to say here is no matter what kind of opposition you're dealing with in life, when you turn to Jesus, you are truly free in Jesus. That is such a short statement, and we will spend the rest of our days applying it in our lives. When we are freed by Jesus, we are freed by Jesus. God can even redeem the negative emotions in our lives for his glory and for our good. Because if we will permit him to, if we will recognize this is his desire and not resist him, if we will open our minds and our hearts to him, they will reveal our true human need to find our ultimate physical, spiritual, and emotional fulfillment in him. And that's why Paul can say, I can delight in my weakness now because I rec when I really recognize a place where I am weak, what I find is God's immeasurable strength in that area of life. And so weakness, while we don't value it as a culture, weakness in the Christian faith is actually a, it's a catalyst for sanctification because what it means is we are beginning to understand in more deep and meaningful ways who we are and are not before Christ. And when we come to that conclusion, Jesus then reminds us that I've already become this for you. Whatever it is we lack, the cross on it, Jesus became it for us. So working out our salvation with fear and trembling is letting Jesus make those truths very real, real to our lives. So where we feel unworthy, okay, that's where you start on the paradigm. When you recognize the problem of sin, unworthiness is kind of a natural feeling. But, but we're not left there because Jesus says like, yeah, I know you're unworthy. I mean, it's, it's like I try to imagine him having this conversation with me over coffee. Like he's like, you're absolutely unworthy, Anthony but I'm your worthiness now, so we're good to go here. That's sort of how I try to think about these things. I, I heard Tim Keller one time say, like, the greatest truths of the Bible, they both, like, knock you flat to the ground, and then Jesus immediately picks you up. We are unworthy, but now we are worthy because of Jesus, right? We do suffer, but in, in, even in our suffering, God's power and his authority and his goodness, he can do wonderful things through these stuff. So we have to be okay with being honest with these things. So whether it's external opposition, 
from people in our lives or, or in internal emotions, which is really what I want to focus on today. Whether we have people in our lives or we're, we're telling ourselves right now, hey, I'm something I'm not yet, or I can't change. This problem's too big for me, or I know hope and peace. Like the Bible talks about that a lot, but I can never experience that. If, if we have these negative narratives we feed ourselves, if they're coming in from inside of us, we have to let the voice of truth correct that. There's a different narrative Jesus wants for our lives, and that is confirmed on the cross. If you wanted to leave us on that side of the cross, there would be no cross, but there is a cross. And the cross redirects our, our thoughts and our emotions, our spirit to him so that we can find hope again in the places of life where we think we are without it. Or think about this. Maybe you're in an environment right now where, where everyone is supporting you. This is how dangerous this can get. Like you're in an encouraging environment. You're in a community group where people are exhorting you and, and challenging you and supporting you to take your next steps for Christ. But the greatest obstacle keeping you from doing that is yourself. When you get away from those voices of positivity, the voice of negativity swells up again in our heads and our hearts, and it starts to redirect our steps in negative ways. This is why it's important to know that when you leave the encouragement of others, you do not leave the encouragement of Jesus. He goes where you go. And he is committed to go wherever you go. So when you deal with that utter negativity or whatever it is, he is there to help with that. If you're letting shame, fear, or anxiety or something else keep you from becoming the kind of person that God wants you to be, it's really time to, to look at these attitudes in the same way Nehemiah did when he looked at the broken and bruised people of God thousands of years ago. And what he reminded them is that these things no longer have a power to keep you under the weight of their yoke. Maybe it's time to, to remove the yoke from the throne of our lives, the thing that weighs our head and our hands down, the, the, the lead weight around our ankles, and it's time to rethrone Jesus because the way we view the yoke is very different. He tells us literally, like, my yoke is pretty light when you carry it. Like, I carry the heavy yoke for you. So if you're following Jesus dragging, what it's saying is, is the wrong person's carrying the yoke right now. Jesus carries the yoke so that our life can be light in him. So the heavy lifting of these things can be brought about in us by him. But we can't resist this or we can't fight this. And we certainly can't be dishonest about this with ourselves or others. Maybe it's time to remind ourselves, like what Nehemiah says, that the faithful hand of God is upon us. And he wants to be the one guiding our lives. So this becomes a matter of dependency. And that's what salvation is all about. When we get to the place in our lives where we say, I realize I cannot earn the favor of God. And to be frank, when you recognize what that would take, it's not even possible, but when you think about how high that bar is, that's a terrible yoke to live under. We begin to recognize our need to be dependent upon Jesus. So today, let today be the day you stop wholly trusting in your own faculties, in the any, any area of your life where it's keeping you from sensing dependency. Maybe today's the day where we ask the question, where, where am I not wholly depending on God? Or where are the places where... I think I'm strong, but I, I actually am weak in this area. Where are the places where we have to swap our idea of how we see ourselves? Where are the places where we need to be less hard on ourselves? Where are the places in life where we need to remind ourselves what Jesus has already done in us? You know, there's that, if you're in Jesus, there's a story of growth in you. That's, it's indisputable. If, it, it, maybe you don't feel it now, but if you have been in Jesus for any amount of time, there is growth in you because it is his promise to us. And so remember, Jesus gave us the helmet of salvation so that you and I could know without a doubt, if you've heard the gospel of salvation, if you've trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior, even though the world around you is collapsing, you do not need to fear that. 
because there is safety and security in Christ, and nothing can ever change that. The very nature of the cross, the very nature of these teachings are meant to remove the doubt from our minds and our hearts about how God wants to work in us. He doesn't want us wondering this day if God loves us and tomorrow whether or not God loves us. He does love us, and he's put his, his money where his mouth is by sacrificing his son for our behalf. That is what he wants us to confidently know. And why is it that we can say that this is true, that we can be confident, safe, secure in the plan of Christ? That doesn't necessarily mean that every moment under heaven is going to be safe and secure. But why can we trust in in an eternal understanding of safety and security? Well, because in other places of the Bible, Paul writes about us being saved and sealed until the day the Holy Spirit comes for our ultimate redemption. When when he, he, he he has sealed us like a king's stamp on a waxed letter, thousands of years ago, it, it, it can only be opened or unopened by the king. And what the promise of this is, being sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit, it simply means that the king has sealed you and nobody has the authority to unseal you. Until the day when Jesus once and for all comes and eradicates the scheme of the enemy, every hardship and trial that we deal with under, uh, under heaven, even the cruel teacher of life, right? Life often teaches us very hard lessons. All of those things we learn in Scripture, and we learn through salvation, cannot unseal us from Jesus. And here is why this matters. Here's why it matters now. If you know that Christ is your Savior like that, if he's not just some guy you read about in the Gospel of John and moved on from, if he's not just a great historical story, or maybe you grew up in an imbalanced paradigm of Christianity where it was all about what Jesus did for you on the cross, and you're like, awesome, but I'm trying to live on earth now. Like, how does that matter today? If you grew up in one of those imbalanced paradigms, this really matters, because if you know that Christ is your Savior in the way we've spoken about today, he deals with the problem and the perils of sin, then you're going to be more confident in the love of God, more committed to God's causes, and more courageous in the face of the difficulties, trials, and challenges that you face. Because you realize Jesus didn't just do something for you, past tense. He's with you every moment of your life today and forever, and is perpetually doing something in you. You do not go the journey of faith alone. And when that happens, the epiphany in our heart and our mind changes. You're going to have an uncanny ability to look beyond the temporal disappointments and limitations of this life, which are legion. Let's just be honest about that. Life is, I said this a couple of months ago, like the great question all the philosophers have tried to answer, and some have answered it better than others, is sort of like, how do we have a life that flourishes on earth in the midst of trial and, and suffering? Well, the reason we as Christians can say we can flourish is because we now have a present and eternal confidence in God's saving grace in our heart. It enables us to stand firm in whatever comes away on this earth, and we know that even if whatever comes this way on our earth takes our physical life, right? The, the, the most valuable thing we have on this earth right now is probably our life next to Jesus. Even if that goes, it's just turning the page to a new chapter of life called eternity with Christ in heaven. There's an uncanny ability to see through circumstances when you understand the big, the big picture, the long game here. And so as we move to the communion table, I just want you to think about this. No matter where you find yourself today, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Dwell in the truth that his death has offered you life and that he endured pain and suffering so that you could experience his amazing grace. We do this in remembrance of him. And so right now, let, let the helmet of salvation, wherever it is, let Jesus put it on your head for the first time or straighten it if it is crooked. Polish it if it's been beat up or bruised. Because I promise you, if you wear the helmet of salvation in the way Jesus provides it to you, you will begin to experience the fullness of life that only he can offer you. 
as he deals with the problem of our sin and the perils it often brings in our lives as we follow him. In. We can stand firm against whatever comes our way. So ask yourself, when it comes to the helmet of salvation, are you wearing it? And if you are wearing it, what will you do about it as you leave this place today? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this time we've had this morning uh, in your word. And I pray now in these, these, albeit brief, but remaining moments we have in communion that you would use this time, God, to help us really solidify, consecrate, Father, our understanding of you and the fact that what we just spoke about, the helmet of salvation, we speak about that today because of this table. The table is the reminder that you went to the cross on our behalf, that you died for our sins, and that through that death you gave us life, life abundant on this earth and eternal in the next. All of these things, God, we pray and ask for in the name of Jesus.